Welcome to The Bazaar. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of The Bazaar. We're almost at 10. Let's get to 10 episodes and let's get those ratings, reviews, and likes right up there where this podcast belongs. Today for our seventh episode, we'll be covering the one, the only, the violent giant himself, serial killer Ed Kemper. This episode is going to be very graphic, as if the other ones haven't. It will deal with violence against women, physical violence, explicit content, and extreme gore. Listener discretion is advised. Pro tip, maybe don't listen to this episode while you're eating something. Information for today comes from Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and Oxygen.com. There are about a hundred different documentaries and interviews with Ed Kemper you should definitely watch if you want to learn more after this episode. Now, if you're not familiar with the name Ed Kemper, you're definitely familiar with what he's done. Let's get to know the guy a little personally. If there was a serial killer baseball card, these are the terrifying stats that you would find. Height, 6 foot 9 inches. IQ, a whopping 145. Characteristics, necrophilia, dismemberment, and cannibalism. Number of victims, 10. So, safe to say he's really just a monster of a dude. Edmund Emil Kemper III. That's right, two more Eds came right before this monster. Ed Kemper was born in Burbank, California on December 18th in 1948. Ed was the middle child between his sisters. His parents were Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper, his dad. Let's paint a picture of the family, shall we? Edmund, Ed's dad, who I'll always refer to as Edmund and Ed Kemper as Ed because they have the same goddamn name. Edmund was a World War II veteran, and after the war, he was employed as an electrician in California. Fun fact about Edmund, he used to test nuclear weapons. Clarnell ran the household, which was actually very unique for that time. Listen, I'm all for women standing up for themselves. I'm a feminist just like anybody else, but Clarnell was the worst. She was cruel and abusive. She belittled her spouse and Ed, he was kept in the basement. From the day that 13-pound baby was born, Clarnell swore that Ed was destined for evil things. By the age of four, Ed Kemper was already a head taller than every kid in his class. He was highly intelligent, but, just like his mother predicted, began to show signs of troubling and maybe evil behavior. There are some real signs that point to psychopathy at a young age in a person, and boy did Ed have every one of them. Ed lacked empathy and was fascinated by death. In case you're not noticing by now, this is going to be a very gross episode. It's about to get real nasty. At the age of 13, Ed took his cruelty towards animals a step further by killing his family cat. Ed thought that the cat liked his sister over him. Gee, I wonder why the cat liked his sister more than this monster of a child. Not only was Ed exhibiting harmful behavior towards animals, he also had equally disturbing thoughts. He would perform rituals on his sister's dolls by removing their heads and hands. Later on in his teens, Ed Kemper would go as far as to sneak out of his house to spy on a female teacher through her windows. Although he never did anything, he had a sickening fascination with watching her. 
When Ed wasn't busy sneaking around like a goddamn nightmare, he was playing fun children's games. No, not tag or hide-and-seek or cards. Ed was much more creative. He'd come up with games called Gas Chamber or Electric Chair, where he'd simulate his own death. When his parents divorced, surprise, surprise, in 1957, Ed's life went down the tubes. Like I said before, he had a really unhealthy relationship with his mom. She was abusive, domineering, and suffered from an addiction to alcohol. Despite all these lovely traits, Cornell somehow got sole custody of her kids. I do believe that there is something fundamentally and developmentally wrong with Ed Kemper from the start. But hey, I'm no expert here. But if there was something to push him over the edge of psychopathy, it would be his mother. On a side note, it's really weird to me going through all of this research and information to pick up on the big problem of mommy issues a lot of these serial killers have. Like, if we look at the big heavy hitters, a lot of them had really bad issues with their mother figures or maternal figures in their lives. I believe I mentioned it earlier in this episode, but Ed spent most of the time locked in a basement. Clarnell also mocked Ed daily for his large size. Like, as if all of that wasn't enough, she also refused to show him any signs of maternal affection out of fear that it would turn him gay. Honey, that's not how it works. It's just called being a good mother. Look it up. I'm not saying it's Clarnell's fault her son became a serial killer, but I'm also not not saying it's her fault, if you know what I mean. At the age of 15, and at the height of 6 foot 4, Ed ran away from home. He stayed with his father for a little time, but because of his dad's new family, Ed was soon shipped off to his grandparents. His grandparents lived on a secluded ranch in the mountains of North Fork. Boy, oh boy, did Ed hate it up there. No scenic mountains for him. Ed often described his grandfather as senile and his grandmother as emasculating. To tie up Ed Kemper's psychological profile in a pretty little bow, let's recap all the stuff that we have so far. We have some pretty terrifying signs. We've got mommy issues. Kemper's hatred for women grew because of this hatred for his mother. To Kemper, in his own words, his future victims represented his mother, femininity, and what was important to her. Second, we have childhood abuse. Kemper's mom was physically and emotionally abusive to him as a child. She would keep him locked in the basement, spooky, and call him names. When his father rejected him because of his new family, he moved in with his grandparents, who then also emotionally abused him. Three, we have disturbing thoughts. Kemper, as a kid, started to have violent fantasies about death. He began cutting off the heads of dolls. Later on, that decapitation would become real. And in life, Kemper took up the nasty hobby of harming animals. Four, we have what we're going to turn next to, his first taste of blood. At the age of 15, Ed's inner hatred against women just spilled out. Do you ever internalize something so, so much that it just flies out? Yeah, you know, it's... Kind of like that, I would guess, except with horrible, deplorable, and disgusting murder. Ed didn't like his grandmother. I'm beginning to feel like Ed didn't really like anybody. He felt like his grandmother couldn't be pleased no matter what he did. During his time there, Kemper's grandfather bought him a rifle, which he would use to shoot birds. Yeah, for sure, just give your teenage unstable grandson a gun, totally fine. When his grandmother tried to take the gun from him, Kemper took the rifle and shot his grandmother three times in the head. 
Then, his grandfather was shot in the driveway of the home. Later on, Kemper explained that he shot his grandfather as a mercy killing, so he wouldn't find out that his wife had been murdered. Following the shooting, Kemper called his mother, who told him to wait for police. Right then and there, he should have been taken into custody, and may be given some psychological care. When interviewed by police, Kemper confessed, I just wanted to see how good it felt to shoot Grandma. Despite this clear psychological sickness, Kemper was just sent to a state hospital for a couple of years, and, at the age of 21, was given back to his mother. Literally the worst thing anybody could do. Not only were they handing him right back into the arms of his abuser, but they were sparking a dangerous fire that would have awful and fatal repercussions. Sometimes I think about what would have happened if we stopped the story there, or if Ed was kept in a facility. Maybe, then, nobody would have gotten hurt. After his release, Kemper worked a series of odd jobs before securing work with the state of California's Public of Works Division of Highways. By that time, he was a bit of a beefcake. He was six foot nine and weighed more than 300 pounds. You try taking that guy in a fight. From 1972 to 1973, Kemper embarked on a spree of murders, picking up female students hitchhiking, taking them to isolated areas, and killing them. To Ed, killing women was a way of getting revenge on Clarnell. Like I said, it wasn't just murdering. He was completely destroying these women. After his grandparents, these are the victims of Ed Kemper. Between May of 1972 and April of 1973, Ed Kemper would embark on his murder spree. He would pick up female students and take them to isolated areas where he would shoot, stab, smother, and strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home where he would decapitate, sexually assault, and mutilate them. During this time, he killed five college students and one high school student. I think it's important to talk about these victims just as much as we're talking about the asshat that did these awful things. Their stories are just as important, if not even more so, than Ed Kemper's. Ed Kemper's first victims were Mary Ann Petch and Anita Luchessa. On May 7th of 1972, Kemper was driving around Berkeley when he picked up the two Fresno State students. They were hitchhiking, and Ed Kemper had promised to take them to Stanford University. After about an hour, he reached a secluded wooded area. Ed Kemper stabbed and strangled both of his victims to death. Here's who Ed Kemper was in a nutshell, in case you needed an even clearer picture painted. Kemper later confessed that while moving Marianne's body, he brushed his hand against one of her breasts, and that it embarrassed him. When talking to police, Ed said that he even apologized to her dead body. Aiko Ku was Ed Kemper's next victim on September 14th. Aiko decided to hitchhike to a dance class after missing her bus. It's easy for us now, I think, to look at all of these hitchhiking situations and argue about how unsafe it is. But in the 1970s, it was the norm. Now, it's just as unsafe as anything else. Aiko was raped and murdered in Ed's car and then dismembered when Ed Kemper returned her to his home. Cindy Shaw was killed on January 7th. At this time, Ed had moved back in with his mother and was driving around Cabrillo College campus when he picked up Cindy. Ed drove into the woods and shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then put her body in the back of his trunk and actually took her back to his mother's house. 
When his mother left the next morning, he dismembered her and decapitated her. Ed actually kept her head for several days before burying it in the garden facing up to his mother's bedroom. Here's a sick, disgusting joke. On explaining why he did this, Kemper said that it was because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Ha! <laughs> funny. Real funny, Ed. Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu were murdered under a little than a month later. Ed Kemper left his house angry after an argument with his mother. With the heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers, students in the Santa Cruz area were advised to only go into cars with a sanctioned university sticker. Problem is, Ed had a sticker. His mother worked at the university. He shot these two girls, wrapped their bodies in blankets, and brought them back into the house to go through his little routine of dismemberment and necrophilia. To us, the action of removing a head is disgusting, vile, and wrong. To Ed, the action of removing the head was a form of taking a trophy. I wish he would have taken up stamp collecting instead. In April of 1973, Kemper battered his mother to death with a pick hammer while she slept. He decapitated and mutilated her body. He sexually assaulted her and then proceeded to use her head as a dartboard. Apparently, that wasn't enough, so he put her vocal cords into the garbage disposal. When the machine couldn't break through the tissue and regurgitated it back into the sink, he just laughed and said, It seemed appropriate, as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. I'm sick just even thinking about someone doing this. His homicidal urges weren't taken care of yet. He invited his mother's best friend over and killed her too by strangulation. But Ed wasn't like a lot of serial killers in ways that he was reclusive and private about his crimes. Ed Kemper actually was well-known and well-liked in his community, similarly to Ted Bundy, actually. In fact, he'd hang out with police officers a lot and thrive off of attention that his killings brought him and they brought him a kind of thrill that nothing else could. Most serial killers are brought to justice by evidence, but not our boy Eddie. After killing his mother and her friend, he fled. But when no information of his crimes hit the radio, he became discouraged. He needed that attention. Ed stopped the car, called the police, and confessed himself to being the co-ed killer. At first, the police didn't believe him. They all knew him as the sweet, mild-mannered giant. To the community, he'd never heard a fly. Ed told them what he'd done, seemingly unashamed, as he confessed to acts of necrophilia, dismemberment, and sometimes cannibalism. Despite showing clear culpability, in his trial, Ed Kemper pleaded insanity. But instead, he was found guilty of eight counts of murder. Trying to take the coward's way out, Ed Kemper asked for the death penalty. Instead, he got life in prison. Kemper was denied parole in 2017 and is next eligible for parole in 2024. Thank you for stopping by this episode of The Bazaar. I'd like to ask a favor of you. Please share this podcast with someone you know. Maybe share the link to this episode if you know they're interested in true crime. You can find us at The Bizarre Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and now Twitter.
Peace out, nerds.